This is a poem by Joseph Canino, and it's been published in book, and he also pu published it on a, a painting that he made a collage, and it's called Know Me. Know me not for this spell of service, not for the concurrence of my thoughts, nor for the pain and error I have caused. Think of me not by the way I look, the graying hair, the wrinkles here and there. The work I do and the way I am shall turn unknowingly to forms interminably small. Know me then without a form, without the yes, without the no. Know me in absence, in quietude and stillness, in the openness of fields and in the roundness of all inclusions in which I am and where you are by Joseph Canino, poet. That was Lita Canino reading a poem written by her late husband, Joe. This is just one of many beautiful artifacts from her life that she keeps in her sleek yet soulful modern apartment. As Christina and I enter the awning, we are greeted with literal open arms. We take off our coats and walk around for a little bit in the living room. There's an easel with one of her husband's collages, as if he's still working on it. Paintings of her grandchildren that are so vivid Christina comments that it looks like they're going to leap right out of the wall. She shows us some of the photos and articles she's unearthed for this meeting. She is warm and kind, an excellent host asking if we'd like anything to drink. She manages somehow throughout this interview to be both incredibly proud of her life and work, while also being incredibly gentle. One thing that was abundantly clear to me and that will become clear to you throughout this interview is how much passion Lita has, not just for art and education, but for life. She has accumulated a rich history of experiences, and we're very fortunate that she shared some of it with us on this day. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Cam, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode from the class of 1952, Lita Canino. Before we go any further, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. These reviews are essential in us climbing the podcast ranks and finding our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, remember to visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. For this episode, the college archivist Christina Kasman takes over hosting duties. Thank you for joining us on this auditory adventure. This is a special episode, and I hope you share it with your friends. Now let's begin. My name is Lida Pollinger Canino, and I originally lived in Mount Vernon, New York, when I was a young child, very close to Bronxville, very close to Sarah Lawrence College, and in a very cultured home. My mother had been a ballerina when she was young, and my father was an amazing concert pianist who spoke five languages and was a professor at City College of New York in Romance languages. Oh my, I had no idea. And I had a wonderful brother at one point in my life 
who was a television uh, director. Oh, you're kidding. Do you remember some of the shows that he directed and what yes, his name he was? Yes, he was one of the uh, vice presidents of Channel 11 at that time. Yes, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Um, so tell us a little bit about growing up in, in Mount Vernon and maybe how that led to Sarah Lawrence. Well, my mother actually knew about Sarah Lawrence because she read in the paper that always they had fairs, they had uh, uh, performances from concerts, and, and she thought that she would take me to them when I was about 9 and 10 years old. A very early introduction to the college. A very early introduction. And I remember it vividly going through two very high gates we had to go in. Because I started Sarah Lawrence as the next part comes. Because I prayed after I had such wonderful time at Sarah Lawrence all the time. Going to see the girls and they would dance or they would sing or we would have a fair and have to buy nice things. And the senior year was coming up. I was at A.B. Davis High School in Mount Vernon. And I was a very good student. But already I had been put under enormous pressure as a young pianist. Now, my father did that mainly. He found a very great and famous uh, piano player, pianist, Nadia Reisenberg, who was a Juilliard artist. And I studied with her from about age 11 and 12 up. I loved her. I loved music. It was very demanding. I could become very, very nervous from being asked to be so perfect and so right. Now, what did I love the most? Just waiting for the bookmobile to come in front of, the, of my house in Mount Vernon. I was the first one there from the age of five on, waiting for those books. <laughs> and books were not only, to me, treasures, but to my father because he was he was a great scholar and his whole studio in our medium-sized home had books of every language in them and I'd have to knock on his door to go in and wash my hands first before I should touch any <laughs> of the books that were in his library. An amazing man. But a kind of perfectionist about the piano, which was not very easy for me growing up and wanting to free myself. As it was, I had skipped one or two gl- grades, so I was quite young. That's why I ca- got, now the next story th- pulls me right into Sarah Lawrence <laughs> College. The senior year... I worked very hard because I had loved going there just with my mother. And I said, oh, I hope I get into Sarah Lawrence. Very fortunate moment of my life. I was received that letter that I waited so much for in my senior year. I was 16, just 16. So I was young. And uh, at first, it I think they had asked for a scholarship, but then they would let me know later or whatever it was. So we started at Sarah Lawrence, and here was the great philosopher and the great president that I knew at Sarah Lawrence College. Harold Taylor? (laughs) His name was Professor Dr. Harold Taylor. Not only... He had already become pretty great before he arrived at Sarah Lawrence, known for his breakthrough for women. He was going to make sure that women had the same education that men had, and he was going to make sure 
that the arts were considered an important realm of learning. So were you aware of Harold Taylor before you started at the college because you were close to the school, or did you come to learn this as you, you started at the college? When I started at the college, I realized who he was. My mother told me a little bit about him. But I didn't know that there were 350 other girls there and that he knew every one of us as if we belonged to him. Is that really true? That's always been the rumor about Harold Heller, and I'm well, always I'll curious tell you about some it. More. <laughs> uh, as I had mentioned, I had already been a young pianist, working hard to be perfect, you know, kind of thing. And my professor was Andre Singer, and I would like to talk about the great Andre Singer, because this has a lot to do with my further career at Sarah Lawrence. Andre and I. We played piano. He'd play one piano. I'd play another. We'd play together. We talked about piano all the time. We talked about musicology. I said, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be a pianist. Then we'd talk about something else. Then I'd say, that's what I want to be. I was quite a little <laughs> bit immature at, the, at that point. And uh, Harold Taylor noticed that I was always in the music there. And one day he's strolling through in, in the beginning, just when I've started. And he says, Lita, I think we have to get you off the piano bench. And he's in his tennis shorts and he always has a racket. I said, <laughs> always. So I, he says, tennis? I said, absolutely not for my hands. And he says, well, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to call Bessie Schoenberg. She's down at the dance department. She'll talk to you about uh, getting yourself moving off the piano bench. And thus started my entire life. That's a wonderful story. So you hadn't thought about dance really at all before that mm -hmm. time. May I tell you about what happened when I first met Bessie Schoenberg? Please tell us what happened about when you first met Bessie Schoenberg. Well, <laughs> First, very, very warm, sweet eyes, a lovely, lovely demeanor, nothing that I would be startled at. I was 16, remember, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, you know, how about coming down to Bates Hall with me? Let's go to Bates, and we'll do a little, little, uh, we have a pianist there, Ruth Lloyd is there, so come on in and we'll see what, what you'd like to do for exercise. I thought, okay. <laughs> I went to Bates Hall and she said, Lita, stand in that corner over there. Big hall. And I'm one little person. Nobody else was there except I'm with Bessie and his warm face, sweet smile. She said, can you think of these two words, I am? And she said, as you think of those words, would you pull yourself as tall as you can and walk from one diagonal to uh, the other, di other point so you have a long diagonal just to walk? I thought to myself, yes. <laughs> and as soon as I started doing that, I think R Ruth Lloyd began to play, play a little something, and when I hear music, I was fine. So I walked all the way across, and when we, I got to that point, she said, how about taking a run, coming back, okay? But remember, what are you thinking? I am, okay? So she pulled me up another few inches right then in, in emotion and in physicality. And somehow the warmth between us, it clicked very, very strong with me. And I thought, I don't have to do tennis. No. <laughs> 
I remember to this day. She said, no, she said, how about joining our dance group? Come in, you can take, we have all different uh, uh, dancers who are way ahead, and some beginner, but she said, you can be a beginner with the, the rest of the group. There was even a master's student in dance there at that time. I think Barbara Benyon was her name. But whatever it was, you know, I said, sure. You know, I was very happy because she had, like, taken over the feeling of emotion of, of affection already. So you immediately me. felt like, uh, like a connection to, to Bessie. It was Tremendous. a... Tremendous. And dance. The person. Yeah. I didn't know about the dance yet, but boy, I, I was okay. It didn't take too long. The first year, there was it was a half of the first year that I Okay. Went. So you started in, in your second? Yeah, okay. Yes. And then by the second year, I was part of the group. And then we began to learn choreography, composition, and I, was, I knew a lot about it in piano. So it helped me a great deal to know what composition, beginnings and strong endings and feelings and everything one needed. One needed strength. And with all my other subjects at this point, I realized that it wasn't going to be that easy to be a member of this <laughs> remarkable dance group. Because it took up so much time? Yes. Uh, we used to rehearse, easy, even in the beginning, almost 11 o'clock at night. And here I'd like to talk about the day student, Lita. Excellent. Okay. You were, a day, were you a day student throughout your career? No, at not at all. Oh. When I met Bessie and I was in the group, but even the first year, Harold Taylor saw my mother pull up all the time to pick me up, what time it was, the first beginning of the first year. And Harold Taylor said to him, Mrs. Pollinger, you don't have to keep coming at 11 o'clock at night. This is too much for you. She said, we're going to keep Lita here. And he gave me a dorm room. That's amazing. So that I stayed for the rest of the, whenever, all the time. So did, it, did you feel your age at that time as a 16-year-old going into a, a situation where, where the other girls were much older? Did you feel younger or were you used to being young because you had skipped grades? I was used to being young, but I always had a, a sort of a social problem. Everybody was beginning to date already, and, and I was a year or two younger, and I was only dating my piano all the time, <laughs> or by books. And uh, I would say I felt it more uh, just entering into Sarah Lawrence, but with all girls there who were, everybody was on such a different individual track I felt, well, I'll do what I like to do and, and what I want to learn and how I feel about myself. And it, I think it was the first time in the life that I could have I said to myself, yes, Bessie said to say, I am. And you feel that kind of informed the rest of your educational experience? Absolutely, to the point of the years and years of teaching children later on and letting them know those are the two most important words. I'd like to speak about Alastair Reed. Alastair Reed always sat up at the top of a little tower. Young man, very handsome. We all used to fight to get who's going to go up there next. <laughs> if that's not too much to say, because his poetry was wonderful, but how he spoke his poetry to us was very 
very, uh, how can I say, he knew just who we were all the time. And I enjoyed poetry very, very much. In fact, Alastair did something that no one will believe. You all know Dylan Thomas, the great poet, who wrote, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Did you know that Alastair Reed brought him to America from Wales and brought him to where? To Sarah Lawrence, to the dance department where all of us were sitting in our leotards at 12 o'clock midnight. <laughs> at midnight. When he, or maybe 11 or 12, <laughs> but I know it was very late. We waited for him in our leotards and tights, sitting up very tall because a special guest was coming. And in came Alistair, and next to him was Dylan Thomas. Did you all recognize him? Was, he, did his, was his face sort of recognizable at the time it, to you? Well, we were told who he was, and he did open his mouth and speak a poem. <laughs> I don't remember which part of what, but he boomed out into Bates Hall, where we were all sitting quietly and nicely, waiting for Alastair to appear with Dylan Thomas. That was a, I'll never forget that minute. Did, how many, about how many girls were there, and oh, were there members of the faculty there as well? No, just the, the girls at night who were practicing, maybe about 15 or something like that. So it was the girls 20. that were part of your troupe and sort of... Yeah, at the group that we were practicing for a performance. So that, and can I talk about one other thing? Please. That's very important to me. I, I can't talk enough about Harold Taylor. <laughs> You know, it was a terrible time politically. It was the time of the, believe it, the McCarthy communist time in which so many lives were ruined by him. One day, we, get, we hear a loud whistle, and Harold Taylor, who was always on the tennis court, we knew to get him, <laughs> ran over to one of us after another and got together 350 girls to, uh, to hold hands very tight to make a human, human fence in front of the library. We had no idea what was going on. So he came, he, he told us, just do that. No, you'll know later, said there will be some black limousines coming up with some women from the, from the Daughters of the American Revolution coming up from Bronxville to go to our library and to search books in our library. And we thought this was terrible, but didn't really understand too much. So we made a human chain all the way in front of the library. I think it's the Esther Rauschenbusch Library now. Now it is. Was it McCracken then? Yes, it was McCracken at that point. And... We saw these three or four long black cars coming up the driveway. And as they came nearer and nearer to us, we kept looking for Harold Taylor, who was still on the tennis court. But he saw the first one. He had his white tennis shorts that he always wore and his racket. And he ran as fast as he could to stand in front of the chain. So here was the chain, and here he was in front. And as they came up, slowly, about three or four large black cars. The doors would open, and women with feathered hats came out. I just remember this as an image, as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, whatever I was at that point, come out. And he just held it to 
and shook his head at them. They were not allowed to come near us. What were they looking for? What was your understanding for, at the time? Uh, well, they were looking to see if we had any books that spoke of communism. I'm sure. And so he was protecting. So what was your sense of what he was protecting? He was protecting the rights of the great creator of literature. Everybody's right who create literature. And they did turn around when we all <laughs> yelled and applauded. Those were the two things. Between Alistair Reed and the poetry and Harold Taylor, those are the two pictures that are very clear still in my mind. They are quite dramatic incidents. Yes, not... and wonderful. Do you remember if the newspaper covered either, like either of those incidents? Well, now this is interesting. I think it was... Uh, I didn't realize that Andre Singer had asked me if I wanted to be music editor at that time. And I didn't really know that I'd have to go to all the different concerts <laughs> and hear everybody and, and do this. But I thought, gee, that would be great. I love to write. I love to read. And now I can write about music. So they made me music editor of the campus, is that it? Yep. Yep. I remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And anything that went, I had to even write if it wasn't good. <laughs> it made me a little sad. <laughs> what was that like, kind of critiquing the work of your colleagues and your peers? I would make sure if it was any names, I would talk with them first. That's nice. Yes, made sure of that. I remember I was a little nervous because many of them, they were in their 20s already, some of them. Do you remember what the kind of feeling on the newspaper staff was like at that time, what it was like being part of that team? or were you? I think sound? it was very hurried. Okay. I think we had to quick get, get that in on a certain day at time with all our papers and all of our meetings, and it, it was hurried. But uh, I tried to keep it as simple as I could, but I wrote pretty easily. That was not difficult for me. Thank goodness. <laughs> Um, you mentioned, so you talked about a couple of your professors, Bessie Schoenberg, of course, but you also took some composition, I believe, some um, class with Meyer Kupferman. Here he is, right here, ah. and my head was, is next. Excellent. <laughs> yes, Meyer Kupferman. Andre Singer wrote very, first of all, Andre Singer wrote very, very carefully about all the details of what I did and who I was, and that it was excellent. He loved to work with me, whatever. Meyer Kupferman later on was incredible because he made me an orchestra member, not only to, for part of the piano, but when the person who played the drums, he said, gosh, you have a concert coming up. Lita, would you please, could you take over the drums? <laughs> so I said, I'll try. I loved the drums. I studied them for a little while, and I remember doing that. And then we had to sing with you, Ross, the choral director. So I was singing, and then I had a piano part that I had to play, and then I had to do the drums. I was in heaven. I was having, and Meyer was wonderful. I have, by the way, all my report cards, so I know what Meyer said. He, <laughs> he and I really had a remarkable time together creating. What are some of the... You've talked about um, Bessie's style a little bit, how she kind of brought out your personality. Um, what was his style and kind of teaching? Yes. Her style became my lifestyle because it was the most direct, truthful, and yet 
soft kind of information back and forth. You never felt that if something wasn't right, which you knew wasn't right, like, and I have a funny story about what wasn't right one day, but uh, she would always give you that chance to see for yourself what you could have done. It was always for you to look at yourself first before she said, and yes, this is true. I said, oh, yes, I should have really turned on that or I really should have jumped higher because I didn't make it or whatever. But there was always that open air for you to say who you are, what you knew happened, and where you were going. And I think there's nothing more in life than that. And at that time, I really made her a little upset because I told her about a young man that I had just met that I thought was very nice. And that was a part of our relationship for the next two and three years. Lita, pay attention. <laughs> so, so am I to gather that this was your, Joe Canino? It was a mutual friend had invited us, and I met him. And even though he was 10 years older, he was an art student. He was taking his master's in art. And his classes happened to be held in White Plains as extension courses. He was just finishing off, and his family also lived in that area. So he used to meander down to Sarah Lawrence, where he knew he first had met me there. And the first date we had was a fair at Sarah Lawrence. And we were like two children having the time of our lives, I remember. Do you remember what time of year that was? Well, the fairs, yes, when the wisteria was out. And the wisteria came out. Uh, It was at that time because we went through a passage under the wisteria. And at the end of it, we looked at each other as if something strange had happened that day. That's very romantic. Yes. We still have those that wisteria arbor. I know. When I was at the reunion with, with uh, President Judd, I made sure that I looked at it and I showed my daughter. She was with me, which was a wonderful experience. Oh, nice. I, I was, you know, they didn't have anyone from 1952 for a very long time. So I knew about that, and I thought, why not now? I believe you came engaged to Joe in 1951. Is that correct? I met him in, I, was, I started in 1948. So 49, it was 49.50 that I met oh. him. Yes. We, <laughs> we didn't make anything exact, yes. let's say. Let's say we fell in love immediately, period. Exclamation point. Ten years apart, he was a great philosopher, too. He spoke philosophy to me, and he, he made me grow up very fast <laughs> just, by, just by hearing him or seeing the artwork he was working on. And he used to go to visit the art and the sculpture department in Sarah Lawrence, too, and make friends there. And he made friends with Bessie. So everybody knew him. It's a good thing because if she didn't like him, I, she wouldn't let me marry him. <laughs> Do you feel that that would have affected your opinion if she, if she didn't like him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the same thing was going on with my parents. You have to understand that because I was young, you know, but not educationally young. Right. All right. 
So did you feel that your experience really changed at college after you oh, met Joe? Oh, I, I had such deeper thoughts about things. He was very deep thinker. Remember, he was four years in the Navy as a Navy pilot. He had been there, not in, directly in the war, but that was a big thing in his life. So he was very mature and very well-read, beautifully read, and uh, very artistic already, painting very beautifully. One of the things I'm hearing in your description, I know that Bessie Schoenberg was very interested in the way the arts interacted. And what I'm hearing from your experience is that you saw, you had music and art and um, dance all interacting very closely here. Now, when I get to the point, which is the highest point in my life, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not there yet, but when I do, you'll hear what poetry and literature and dance afforded to me the highest moment in my life, in, in a career. I would like to go now, perhaps, to the graduation here. Yes. Because it was wild. I had performances in everything I did <laughs> that year. And at the last week, I have all the papers that show that I played the piano, I played the drums, I was in everybody else's pieces, performances, and... It was a wild one, getting ready to have the wedding in my house. By the day my parents said, you may not get married to Joe until you graduate. I listened to them, my mother and father, and then it was the next day after graduation. <laughs> Quite a week. <laughs> yeah. That, that week was amazing because we made the wedding in my home. We were married 68 years and together 70. Is that wild? So you had just graduated, and the next day you married oh, Joe. Tell us about what followed. <laughs> Joe got a good job. He got a job teaching art in New Jersey, near New Milburn, New Jersey okay. High School. And we were so happy because after all this, we were just married. We had a one little tiny room apartment there. And he was so excited because they were going to give him $10,000 a year. <laughs> as soon as I got there, that meant it was the day after. Oh, let me go back to the wedding, As you please. like. Yes, of course. And I have something very important. I want to tell you who was at my wedding more than anything else. Everybody knew the wedding was coming. But who was there? Of course, Bessie was there. And Dimitri, her husband, Dimitri Varley, and Ruth Lloyd, and Norman Lloyd, and everybody was there. And, and we just sang, and, and I had a wonderful pianist there. And, and it, was a, uh, it was a great send-off for a life. Not up to children yet. Okay, <laughs> I am up to me keeping in good shape. As soon as we got there, I didn't stop dancing. I went into the city all the time the first two years, and I studied with a remarkable person that I will speak about in just one minute. Before that, I opened up about six or seven colleges in New Jersey to have new modern, have modern dance groups. They didn't have any. They had physical education. I went to an all-men's physical education college called Panzer College and spoke to someone and said, where, well, do you have dance? No, this is this for men. I said, I'd be happy to teach the, the warm-ups in the morning to the basketball team, which I did. Oh, my goodness. And we had an amazing uh, response. 
and that all men's college became more folk college and other people, and it just changed, and then I had several classes there. However, at the same time, I was teaching at Joe's school, which was in Milburn. I started the modern dance group there. And Fairleigh Dickinson College, I started the modern dance there. At Drew University, also, all up near uh, mm-hmm. where Joe was going to be teaching yes. at Milburn, near, near that area. And I met a lot of other people who came from different areas who also knew about the modern dance, but it was just a beginning. It wasn't an education at all, as a course or anything, maybe a little sideline or a club. So I was determined, right from Bessie's hands, I would go to just jump in and let them all get that feeling that there was that art. So what was the, the driver there? Was it kind of you keeping active or wanting to share share Bessie's teachings with people, or was it a combination of those two things? Uh, definitely a combination, and also it was a timing, because while I was doing that, I went into New York to still take classes. Now, what did I, where did I take classes? Oh, my gosh. First, there, was, there were many conferences that I was attending in the city. I think Alvin Nicolai's. Um, uh, who was the other? There, there were so many wonderful modern dancers who were having those uh, kinds of conferences in New York. And I, oh, Donald McHale was the other great dancer whom I worked with and went into New York. We used to teach at conference, art, uh, dance conferences. Then my husband Joe said to me, you know, I read today that Pearl Primus, the great African dancer, went to Africa and, bring, and is bringing back Watusi men to dance with her at the 92nd Street Y in New York. He said, I like the modern dance. He said, but let's, let's go. Let's go in and watch this. Changed my life, Joe, you know it. So we went to that concert, and I never, well, she, uh, Pearl Primus, you know, was the, the queen of the African dance in America. And she was well known for the spirituals that she danced that would make you not believe that you could feel like that. So my husband said to me, how about take a few classes with her? So I did. And I went there on a day that I didn't know that it was an advanced class there. And I came on 23rd Street in New York. She was not yet in the room, but I, w- I took the advanced class. Boy, I couldn't twirl my head. You know, <laughs> I couldn't make it go all the way around that fast. I could not jump and not come down like so many of the people in that room of the, of the real African dancers were doing. So toward the end... She walks into the room. She was a queen. She was dressed so magnificently in her robes with a a golden sort of crown. And and she comes in as the drums. By the way, very famous drummer there. Became drummer, I believe, with Alvin Ailey after a while. But uh, Pearl Primus's choreography was one of Alvin Ailey's first pieces. You know. So she came in and she introduced, she said, I haven't seen you here before. I said, this is my first class. And she said, and this is my advanced class. I said, my head did not spin. I could not do that. I could not stay up in the air. Well, we had a friendship and a love together. And I went in 
two or three times a week and worked with my elevation and with the excitement of the, of the music. Harry Belafonte was singing the songs in the back of the, of the room. A lot live? Yes. Li- oh. Yes, he, he live. Very <laughs> oh young. The young Harry Belafonte was there. And wow. I fell in love with... I'm always falling in love, which is great. <laughs> I fell in love with my, my pearl, Primus, I really got strong at that time. I was an okay, I was a good dancer, but not not anything as difficult as this. So that was going on, and I guess I needed a rest because the next part of the story involves uh, two beautiful babies. (laughs) And she was having a baby too. So the timing was fine. We were going to go to Trinidad together, and we both decided (laughs) not. We were not going to go. She was going to take me to her home. May I touch these? Yes. So how long did you work together before you... you... A whole whole year that year. Because... uh, Frank was born in 1955 and was married in 52. So those three years I spent creating modern dance groups, even teaching African dance in the modern dance group, and going to Pearl Primus in the evenings and performing with her group. We used to go to schools in New York City and show the one what the African dance could look like. That was great. That it must have been great. an exhilarating time to kind of be figuring out where you would go next and, yes. and how you would learn more. So I needed a rest, and the rest came in the form of Frank Paul Canino, born 1955, and Leanne, L-I-E-N-N-E, Leanne Canino, beautiful daughter, 1958. So I had a... a one-year-old and a three-year-old, or whatever it was, the normal thing. And did I stop teaching and dancing? Not really. Joe was wonderful about coming home in time to, to say with the babies. So I tried the best I could, and it wasn't easy. We moved back to Westchester County, where his family was, where my family was, and he was given a job as art and the, uh, director of the White Plains High School. Little did we know within that year he'd be made a professor at NYU in art because he had finished his degree and heard. But we were up in White Plains. And now this is the most important part of my life, really. When we got there, I knew about the Westchester Dance Council. This is very, very, very important. I had people who had taught dance in the area. I knew them. And they had formed a magnificent dance council in which they had the great dancers came as visitors, lecturers, gave seminars, taught classes. And they were doing something wonderful. They were doing dance therapy. And I took the job of being a dance therapist at Blythdale Hospital with children who had leg disease, hip disease, and were in beds all the time called Perthes disease. And I had to work it out. What was I going to do in the dance? I wrote an article. The article is called The World Opens. And it's about the time, the couple years, that I worked with children in the hospital. Many were in bed. 
Some were walking around. It was the most sad thing you could ever see, but I created a new world for them called The World Opens. And I strung elastic bands from bed to bed to bed because I didn't even know if they knew who was next to them. They became friends. We would sing to each other. We would move what could move to each other. We would make up stories for each other. And I would dance around all of the beds and pick up some children and whatever the doctors would allow me. And I knew what the children were up. But that was called The World Opens, and it opened for me, too. And every day I came home and looked at my healthy children and really blessed them because I saw some very sad. Also, at the same time, I was working at the Leak and Watts Children Home, teenagers who had been thrown out of their houses and landed in the streets. This was up in Yonkers, well-known place. Yes. And I was asked to come in and do uh, and have dance classes for them, but it was a therapy for them at right. the same time. I had some very sick teenagers mentally more than anything else, and I remember this. And I received a beautiful letter saying that they really wanted me to, to come back soon. And how did you, I mean, this range of jobs, how did you find that people reached out to you, or did you reach out to them in general? And how did those introductions happen? Yes. Through the Westchester Dance Council, there okay. were, I was the education chairman there. So I was out to see where we could spread the importance of the dance to. And this was one area, which was therapy, either for children in the hospital or psychological therapy. What was the, in terms of kind of your experience, how did those two, they must have been very different teaching experiences. Oh, yes. Um, what do you think changed the most in your teaching style during that time and, and which had the greatest effect? Yeah. Well, the I am came back to right, right again because who they were were very difficult for me at many times. There, were, there was one boy in the teenage group who was a beautiful dancer, yet he was psychologically so sick. And then there were others who just loved the, the freedom of moving their body rather than being shut up in a small little room and with a doctor or whatever. And it taught me the biggest lesson of life to work, especially with the children at Blythedale, because they had very little. But they did love it when I put the music or sang to each one of them a song every morning. I would come in and sing their song with their name. I have to talk about one thing. There was one child who was so ill, she could not lift her head. I forget, multiple sclerosis or something very serious like that. And the doctor told me not to bother with her because she would not respond. Well, every time I, I would come in and sing each name with each child, and we would do a little movement of our heads or whatever, she had her head resting on the, on the, what do you call it? On the, on the, well, she was in a walker, yes, okay. on the a little tray in front mm -hmm. of her. And the doctor said, don't bother. I said, no, I will. And I sang her name, and I saw her eye flicker. For About a couple weeks later, I saw the side of her head begin to move up. She could not lift her head. It wasn't another disease. And 
seven or eight weeks later, she actually sang her name. And to me, that's probably the most exciting thing that ever happened to me in my life. Because then I'd go home to my two very healthy children. It was difficult. But out of this difficult Westchester Dance Council came the most important thing that ever happened in my life. They were going to invite, they, by the way, I was one of the few people there who was still performing dance. And they had asked me several times to perform for them, I did. One day, I heard from someone at the council that they were thinking of inviting Ruth St. Dennis to the Westchester Dance Council. Ruth St. Dennis, the god of all dance, of course. She and Dennis Sean, I want to talk about those Ruth St. Dennis was every dancer's dance teacher. Ruth St. Dennis and um, Ted Sean, called Dennis Sean dancers, had in the Berkshires a huge, huge, beautiful festival all the time and like a university of the dance, they called it, but it was in the woods and it was very big. And my mother had even known of her as a ballerina. My mother was at this point 85, wow. the same age as so was Miss Ruth, okay? okay? We invited Ruth St. Dennis to be our guest at Westchester Dance Council. And then I was asked to please dance my poem of Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night that I had been dancing in a variety of, of churches or whatever it was. I was into now the sacred dance a little bit. And she agreed. She was almost 85. And they asked me, would I, as the beginning of the meeting at the Westchester Dance Council, when we were per, per introducing her to everybody, would I dance? for her. And the dance was the Dylan Thomas poem, because they had seen this before. Well, it was the most amazing day of my life at this point, because she came, 85 years old, white-haired, a little frail, but beautiful still. And I opened the, the whole meeting. We were a good amount in a large auditorium. And I opened with my dance. Then she spoke about her life and all the great dancers. Martha Graham was her student, you know, and Martha Graham was very young. At the end, she came up to me and congratulated me on my dance and then said, Lita, are you free to be my protege for the next year? I have an apartment in New York, and you're not too far. And if you will come down, because you, you dance to poetry, and that's what I wanted. And I wanted to share with you my book of poems, and we would pick out the ones that I would speak and you would choreograph to. So Miss Ruth, in her gentle voice, said, I have a book of poems. And she handed it to me. And I looked through it, and after I had danced, for her, she gave me this book of poems. She says, we're going to choose some poems, and we'll work for the next year together. And you will be my protege. 
She says, Dear Lita Canino, who is helping to keep burning the divine flame of beauty. This was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. My mother even knew of Ruth Sagan <laughs> as a ballerina. She says, oh, yes, everybody was going barefoot at that time, you know, right from the beginning. And I spent the next year from Westchester going into New York once or twice a week, and I have all those pictures over there of how in her little apartment, she was not wealthy at all. <laughs> no dancers are, by the way. <laughs> and uh, she had a big sheet up on the whole wall like that and placed me there with the light. And she stood next to me and read some of the poems. And then we introduced our guest, Ruth St. Dennis, age 85, who a friend had just picked up at the station there and brought from New York. And she came in. There she is, the gown. And we had five dances that we worked out over the year. And I did each one of them. Now, where were my children? They were in the next room or two, in the children's room, where all of them were, you know, <laughs> a kindergarten or whatever it was. And uh, very well dressed, because Miss Ruth had said, after this, let's all go out for lunch together. I want to see the children. So it became a family, and it became the highlight. So I never believed that I would end my dance career with Ruth St. Dennis. And it went on for a long time after, and I will tell you about after Ruth St. Dennis. I decided that I wanted very much to work with children. I had worked with children a lot. And so I went back, I went to Columbia Teachers College and I got my master's degree in one year. And we moved down to Riverdale, where Joe could go down to NYU and I could go up to, to Westchester. We were right in the middle. So I decided, I love to work with children. How about getting a full-time job in, in a school teaching? But I would only take it in a school that would allow me to use the arts to teach the the uh, rest of the subjects. So I went back to Sarah Lawrence and spoke to someone at Westlands and said, who would like a dancer who wants to be a regular teacher? They were wonderful. They said, try Scarsdale. Sure, I knew it was a way up expensive area. I knew that. But they said the schools are very open to new ideas. And the most beautiful school. So I went. I had I had uh, an interview, and I thought, well, who, who wants a dancer, first year teacher in a school that could get anybody there? Fortune was with me, shall we say. And they said, well, we do have an opening in second grade at the Heathcote School in Scarsdale. The Heathcote School is a beautiful modern glass and and. Uh, colored glass and brick building in the woods, right? One of the five schools of Scarsdale. And I took a position in second grade there and stayed there for 20 years in second grade. <laughs> and I loved every second, second minute of the second grade. And all of my children learned how to dance a lot a lot of the curriculum. It was at a time when Lincoln Center in New York 
was sending dancers into the public schools to add the whole feeling of, yes, the arts can be taught with the academics at that time, which I was doing already. So they found my name, came to Heathcote School, sat in my classes for a while, and I think they enjoyed it. The children did, too. The next thing I knew is that Lincoln Center and Scarsdale Schools asked for me to have a grant to write a booklet or whatever it was about how I would incorporate dance into each one of the curriculum areas. And it went out not only to my schools, but many schools. The piece is called Moving Into the Curriculum. Yes. I called it Moving Into the Curriculum, and I had a good amount of time a couple months off, maybe, to work on it so that I took each one of the curriculum areas and showed how the concept of what they were learning in that area could be taught in dance and music or whatever it was, mostly dance. And I was loving it because I kept saying, see, Bessie, Bessie, look what I'm doing. <laughs> Harold Taylor, you wanted the dance to come to, into, into education. That was your main thrust. That's what he wanted. He wrote three articles and three books, how to get it into the public education so that all children could have this. Here I am, and I have 20, what, 20, 25 a year. That means 500 in this 20 years I was there. So here it is, and you may look at it at any time. It has to do with all kinds of things, mostly in math, how to teach science, well, my goodness, when smoke goes in the air, what a lighter feeling than when things drop down, right? <laughs> and for these are seven-year-olds, six, seven, and eight-year-olds, and it could be applied to high school just as well. So I was thrilled with this, and after 20 years in second grade, I knew what a seven-year-old was like, but I also wanted, I also had student teachers from Columbia in my classroom for the last two years and taught them. When I retired, I was 55. I was 35 years old to 55 years old at Heathcote School. When I retired, I received a phone call the next day, Columbia Teachers College. And I only knew the one person who sent me in the classroom, you know, all the time, and said, we would like you to join our staff. We would like you to come and be part of the staff. And I want to read you something. At Heathcote School, the parents were a very important part of the curriculum and the whole school. They, they knew their school was different. They knew they believed in the arts. But they also very, very, very careful that w their child was way ahead of the next child. <laughs> it was difficult because they, well, so-and-so is in a third grade and this one's in a fourth grade book. There was a lot of this kind of thing, which I tried to dismiss as much as possible. But you couldn't, after all, you can't only do so much that felt right in the classroom with you. So when I heard that after all the years, I think, <laughs> when I heard from all the years that I was going to uh, have an adjunct professorship at Teachers College, and I was to have many student teachers at that time, 
Now, the first few years, I, I was thrilled. And I went to the schools with them, and I was horrified. They were mostly the schools in the city. And there was, I decided that as long as they wanted to keep me there, I was going to give dance seminars for their student teachers. <laughs> and every, you know, they frowned. It's all written in paperwork <laughs> and lots of grades. And oh boy, and the timing as you're getting to be a teacher there. It's not easy. But somehow I got my seminars in when I could to show them that they could teach anyone of the regular curriculum with the arts, mostly music and dance. And were you still in touch with Bessie at this time? Were you kind of talking about your work or kind of a normal no. student-teacher relationship? You know what drifted? happened? As soon as I... Something strange. Not strange. As soon as I got to uh, the first part of my life with Dad uh, and the children, everything changed for me. I felt that I was... I was there for myself, feeling strong. Whereas the four years at Sarah Lawrence, boy, did I rely on every wink and every smile and every feeling that I, that I had there from everybody. And it was a good time, because when you're going to be a mother, you have to make sure that you're really on top of things. So the joy of uh, moving into the curriculum was that I could continue to use it at Columbia Teachers College. And I, had, I was in classrooms that were horrendous there. Only certain things began to change, like the writing program began to change a little. But even that wasn't worked well. So I was very happy that I could have a couple seminars. And I wondered how the students would take them. You know, whether the students would realize that, yeah, it's as important as bringing in the paper at the right time and, and hurrying and doing this. So I gave one pretty big seminar from moving into the curriculum, and it was for my student teachers, 1998, Daily Reaction. It was the first time that they're, they're told to, you know, I said, just wear something very comfortable, you know, whatever it is. I had my drum. Remind me to show, my, show you my drum. I still have it. Yes. I had my drum with me. I had uh, my, my leotard. They were used to a professor with tights and a leotard <laughs> and a little shawl or whatever it was I, I had. And they danced. They tried it. Some were very, very, you know, looking at me, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> And then I got all these letters back about how did they like moving into the curriculum. And I want to share one or two things with you. I hope I have the right one here. It says, I just returned, 1998, I just returned from the dance workshop held this afternoon, and I wanted to spend some time writing about it since it made such an impact on me. I thought about it during the train ride home and could not stop smiling. It was the best lesson to date ever given at Columbia <laughs> Teachers College. It was such a wonderful combination of teaching savvy, thank you, Bessie, lesson content and constructive activities put together in one lesson. It was well thought out and presented. I particularly appreciated the practical approach. 
I enjoyed the lecture at the beginning of the lesson and the following activities that reinforced the concept, Harold Taylor, okay, concept and provided concrete examples of what we could really do in our classroom. When I heard that, that was all I needed for the rest of my life at that point. And very important. And I enjoyed the lecture. I gave them a lecture at the beginning of the lesson and the following activities that reinforced the concept and provided concrete examples of what we could do in our classroom. The comparison of language used in dance with various aspects of the curriculum laid such a wonderful groundwork for the entire lesson, particularly for a skeptic as myself. That's right. Yes, Lita, I was not nece necessarily convinced of the power or purpose of movement in the curriculum before today's workshop. But we, we called each other by first name there. But after my experience this afternoon, there can absolutely be no question about how I now feel. I had a blast. <laughs> it's just wonderful the way that each, each one. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed myself, how comfortable I felt in letting go, saying I am. Where we are, the circle has closed. I thought it would be hard to really engage in the movement. I often feel uncoordinated and untalented in this regard, but that does not matter. We all have an energy inside of us waiting to be released. And even if it comes out looking a little funny, it does not matter because the feeling of getting it out is what matters. And is it powerful? Lita's infectious enthusiasm stayed with us for the next couple of days. I'd catch myself smiling, remembering her apartment, her stories about Sarah Lawrence, and Joe's poem. That's when she called to leave a message. Hi, Christina. This is Lita Canino. To thank you, thank you for a remarkable day for me. Really, a, a true reawakening, we can call it. I did find two things that most important, and the most important thing that I forgot was that I was one of the Sarah Lawrence dancers with the Philharmonic Symphony at Carnegie Hall under Bessie Schoenberg. And we choreographed dances for the music, the Philharmonic Symphony dance performance music. And it was the greatest day of my life. I was number one dancer to come out from behind this curtain to begin the group dances. And it's an experience I'll never forget. And I forgot to tell you. Imagine Carnegie Hall. Okay, that was just before, that was the third year I was there, I, I believe. And I think you'll know something about that. Anyway, I want to thank you for your beautiful time. Get to, back to me. I keep finding things that I should have told you. And I want to send you some pictures, and I will do that. All right, send you, I send you my love and my thanks for a great day. And also to Tim. Bye. Thank you, Lita. On behalf of all of us at Sarah Lawrence, we admire you. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. If you'd like more from the SLC Library Podcast, then go back and listen to one of our chats with many of the fellow staff members and students until the next episode. Remember to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. 
Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for sharing your time with us. We look forward to doing it again next week. But until then, have yourself a very nice day. Thank you.